be reading Philippians 4, uh, 10 to 23. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have re renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippines know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for gifts, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong in Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, please do take up your Bible and let me ask you a question as we come to the end of our series in Philippians. Here's the question. I hope you're ready. It's a tricky one. It's going to make you scratch your head. Here it comes. What makes you content? What makes you content? Can you think of a happy place in the world? Perhaps it's a warm bath with candles on and all that fluffy stuff that you go in the bath that makes it smell nice. Perhaps that's your happy place, your place of contentment. Perhaps it's when there's warmth on your skin. Remember those summer days with a glass of something pink or red or something refreshing in your hand? Water is the best, of course. Uh, perhaps it's having someone to say, like Kate Winslet did for her family friend, I will pay your £17,000 heating bills. Warmth. A good book, open spaces, Epsom Downs, that's my happy place, that's where I feel most content, away from the troubles of the world, away from that crowded 715 to Waterloo Station. Martin Luther, the great reformer and writer, wrote these words, contentment is a rare bird that sings sweetly at the breast. Contentment is hard to find. I don't really need to remind you of that. We can spend all our life looking for something that will make our heart rest, give us a sense of our significance and importance, give us a sense of standing and poise. Contentment is elusive like the mist of the morning. It's something you run after but just always slips through your fingers. And normally you get to a point of realization about the age of 42. That's the key age, I think that I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found contentment. I haven't found something that gives me ballast against the storms of life. And then here we have in sentence 11, look down please, and sentence 12 as well of Philippians chapter 4, these words from the Apostle Paul. 
I've learned contentment. I've learned the secret of being content, verse 12, in any and every situation. That is quite a claim. I'm not just content with the bubble bath, with the sun on my back, when health is 100%, when all is well in the world, when I've got 100% on a piece of coursework, or when a teacher gives me a house point. I've discovered the secret of a deep equilibrium, a poise, a satisfaction, to quote the Rolling Stones, that is immovable, that is lasting, that gives me a sense of ballast in the storms of life. Now, we're all after that, aren't we? We're all after that to some greater or lesser degree. What is it that will help me face the future, pay the bills, face my boss for whom I've got a difficult conversation with, face my mum who I need to have a hard conversation with, face my dad who I've not seen for many years. Those are the real challenges that we face, but here's the challenges that face the Apostle Paul when he says these words. He's facing torture. He's in prison. He's facing execution, incarceration. And yet he writes in the midst of all these immediate challenges, verse 11, verse 12, I am at peace. I've found contentment in any and in every situation, which means in the situation that he's facing, he's not glim or just a, a cursory smile. He's found truth that lasts. He's found uh, a contentment that satisfies. Now, what right has he got to talk about something like that? Two things to look at before we lead ourselves to the communion table. Paul says, well, true contentment, true contentment is a secret. And secondly, he says in these sentences, true contentment has to be learned. True contentment is a secret, number one. True contentment has to be learned. That's number two, number one. True contentment is a secret. Verse 12, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret, he says in the middle of verse 12. Now, why does he call it a secret? Why is it top secret to the apostle Paul? Is it something that can't be found unless you've got a password? No, it's not. But it's something that not everybody has experienced. Not everybody has found. The word he uses for secret means it's not an obvious thing to know lasting satisfaction and deep-rooted joy. You don't just need common sense to find what Paul has found. You need a revelation. You need your eyes to be opened and your hearts need to be cleared out and you need a new heart to find what Paul is describing. But it's a yearning, a longing for contentment that everybody experiences, that few people find, and that all the great thinkers have a go at describing. It's a tremendous passion and desire. And that's why he uses this word in the middle of verse 12, secret. And he has the audacity to say, I've learned it. Now, here are some great thinkers in the modern world. There's a superb picture here of Mark Twain. What a fun guy to hang out this guy will be. Look at those eyes. He looks someone who's intense. Mark Twain says this about the thirst that we all have for contentment. Oh, you don't quite know what it is you do want. But it just fairly makes your heart ache. You want it so. In American prose, he's saying there's a deep-rooted need that we all face, Christian, non-Christian alike, agnostic, Buddhist, Sikh, Muslim, modern person, someone who says that they're not religious at all. We all face this deep ache and longing in our hearts 
which is why we have songs like I Can't Get No Satisfaction, because it's true. C.S. Lewis says this in his book, The Problem of Pain. When you stand before a landscape which seems to embody what you've been looking for all of your life, in your hobbies it's the secret attraction, often on the verge of breaking through, through the scent of cut wood in the, wo- in the workshop or the, the clap-clap of water against a boat's side. You never had it. But if it would ever become manifest, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. It's the thing we've desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work. While we are, this is. If we lose this, we lose all. We all want contentment, say the great writers and the great uh, explorers in the modern world and the great people that look at all of life and say there's something that's just a chasing after the wind and that the modern man and modern woman are still just as poor in the search for contentment. It's always eluding us. But when we think we've got it, And then it slips through our fingers again like the morning mist or like sand grains on the seashore. When it's eluding us, there's four things that happen normally at the age of 42. Here they are. When you realize you're unhappy, that meaning has slipped through your grasp once again, you can blame things. You can blame things. Here I am at age 42 or 45 or 47. And you blame things because you say, I thought I was happy and I'm still unhappy. I need a better spouse. I'm going to have an upgrade. I'm going to separate from my loved one. I'm going to end my marriage. I need a new career. I need a better car. One that's not electric because that's going to get taxed in the future perhaps. Or you can blame yourself. The reason I'm unhappy is because there's something wrong deep inside of me and now I realize it's not everybody else. It must be me. I need help, I need support, I need advice, professional. No, 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 it's not uh, out there or in here. It's the fault of the universe. And so you look at a global issue and you say, the universe has done something. I'm built for eternity. I'm built to rise above normality. I'm built to soar like the eagle or a spitfire. I'm built for complete love and acceptance and I cannot find it on earth. Therefore, it must be the universe's fault, not me. Or you blame your relationship with God. That's the fourth option. When you have uh, elusive contentment. There is a God and I was built for him. There is a God who if I knew him. Would satisfy these desires. So where is he? In these moments. Those are the four options. When you get to 42 or thereabouts. When you've seen a bit of life and a bit of suffering. And you cannot find the contentment that you long for. Because it's a secret. Says the Apostle Paul. C.S. Lewis continues, he says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hungry. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling, well, they want to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world could satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse my desire for that place. For that place. See what Lewis is saying? See what Twain is making us think about? 
if you can't get no satisfaction from the things in this world, it's a sure sign that those good God-given attractions are making you hungry for another world and for true truth that lasts and for a contentment that can truly satisfy. And Paul says, verse 12, I found the secret for true contentment and we know his surroundings and yet he has the audacity to say, I've found true contentment. So what, number two? Well, if it's a secret, he then says it can be found, it can be learned. Let's think about that. One of the main problems in Greek philosophy at the time that the Apostle Paul was writing before, and we still see its remnants in today's thinking as well, is that how can you live a life of contentment? Verse 11, I've learned. Verse 12, I have the secret. Contentment rooted, this is for you and for us as adults as well, Contentment means you've found a source where the deepest needs and longings of your heart can be truly met. And Paul says, God has shown me that the source of true contentment is found in Christ and in Christ alone and nowhere else. Everywhere else is sinking sand. But Christ alone is the rock under my feet and he's the hope for the world. It's not your honor. It's not the acclaim of others. It's not the approval you get from work or having kids that do what you say first or second time. It's not love that will satisfy most fundamentally. But it's Jesus Christ alone who will. And Paul says, God has been teaching me that through the hardest of circumstances. For me to live is Christ and therefore to die is, is gain. Philippians 1.21 because our moods fluctuate. And yet here is a solidity that provides true contentment and lasting satisfaction. Think about your mood swings. I won't look at anybody in case I incriminate myself. But think about mood swings. They fluctuate, don't they, like the winds? They fluctuate like the waves, up and down, almost on an hourly basis. People are smirking already. There are Motions that swing violently based on relationships, based on you versus the mirror, based on our emotions, based on examination prospects or results or exams that you're about to go into when you just sweat like me as I sat in the driving seat for my driving lesson or my driving exam rather. I remember peeling my t-shirt off my back Poor examiner's car. I'm sure he cleaned it or valued it regularly. Think about your bank balance. Golly, prices are going up again. Energy is going up again. How am I going to make ends meet? I was fine until Jeremy Hunt said what was going to happen in the coming years, and now I'm terrified. Most of us are greatly affected by our emotions that God has given to us and by our circumstances that change frequently. So this is the philosophical dilemma. How do we find true contentment? And the Greeks said, through the voices of the Stoic philosophers, there's only one way, and that is to live as if you are two inches above the ground. Do not live for your family. Do not live for your career. Do not find purpose in what you feel. You need to live a life of virtue. You need to live a life of virtue when character is the most important thing. You need to... Focus all your energies on endurance, on control, on fortitude, on being a person of character. Do not be driven in life by your emotions. Be a person with a stiff upper lip would be an English way of translating it. 
And the Stoics lived in the time that Paul was writing. And Paul wants to address this issue of contentment and says, it's not about living two inches above the ground. God has given your emotions, but you process them through the cross. And this is what it means to find godly and God-centered, Jesus Christ-centered contentment. Flip back to what Paul was facing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. Just a few pages back, please. 2 Corinthians 11. Here is Paul defending his ministry. And he's saying, this is what I have been through as you attack me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food and I've been cold and naked and I've had responsibility for the churches. And guess what? In spite of all of that, I've learned the secret of being content, says the Apostle Paul. Suffering does not mean that you are out of God's plan. Rather, it's the very thing that we are caused to do. Verse 12, Paul says, throughout all these situations, true contentment is found trusting God in the circumstances of life, trusting God for the future, relying on him in the present, seeing what Christ has done on the cross and ascended on the third day, risen on the third day and ascended into heaven rather, seeing what God has done and believing it. That's where true contentment is found. And the question is, are we ready to believe that? Are we ready to exercise our faith in that regard? Chapter 1, verse 29 in the book of Philippians says this. For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, true contentment is found in trusting God in the hardest circumstances of life. And boy, what a great encouragement it's been for me to see so many of you doing that this year when you face such God-given challenges. Faith has been exercised through the hardest of circumstances. Sometimes we can think God has a duty, you see, to make our lives easy. We think God has a duty to say and put into action what we know will be in our best interests. And so our contentment is very much linked to our circumstances. I remember hearing Rico Tice describe Christians as boats. Christians as boats, it's on the screen. Christians can be like boats in a tidal harbour, he said. They're all happy when their boats are bobbing along when the tide is in. But when the tide goes out, Christians can list along like boats leaning on one side or the other. Their emotions and feelings about God are controlled by their circumstances of life. That was not true for the Apostle Paul. All that he went through, and he says, one, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. What a thing to say. 
when Christians pray, you hear their theology. You hear what they believe about God. Very often we pray for our circumstances to change. Now there is a place for that, for our health to change, for situations on our heart to be dealt with, for a new job to be given. There's a place for that. But notice how Paul prays. He says, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, in any and every situation. His priority is always to make the worth and beauty and greatness of Jesus known in the lives of those who are near him or near his heart. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Here he is in jail and he's saying, praise God that I'm in jail because I've had wonderful opportunities to, to tell this massive Roman guard that I'm chained to about Jesus. And he can't get away for the duration of his eight-hour shift. It's brilliant. And look what's happened because of where God has put me in jail. Chapter 4, verse 22. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. God has worked through Paul's suffering. He's worked through his prison stay. He's worked through his chains. And even massive, hunky, burly prison guards have been brought from faith, rather, from death to faith, from death to life, from blindness to sight. And they've seen Jesus because of Paul's difficult circumstances. What a wonderful thing that is. I wonder if that's your thinking as we're thinking about Christmas. Are you thinking, how can I make the bills meet? That's an understandable question. Are you thinking, how do I manage Christmas to give my loved ones what they need? How can I look after myself? Or are you thinking, no matter how the circumstances have changed, who can I invite to the ladies' craft night? Are you thinking, who can I invite to come to the curry evening? Who can I invite to our Christmas services? Who could I give this brilliant Christmas resource to? Who can I invite to our carol service? And so on. What a challenge Paul's thinking is to our prayers and to our decisions in our life. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. God has taught me this through the school of life. God's been educating me through the, the gymnasium of faith. And I've learned that Christ is my strength. Verse 13, Christ alone is is my strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Do not think that means that you can sing at the front if you can't. It does not mean that God will give you everything you ever wanted. I want to play football. I want to earn millions. And there's an, uh, going to be a, soon there's going to be a vacancy at Man United in Ronaldo's shirt. So I'm going to pray this verse and I'm going to go and play. You wouldn't get very far if you're like me. No, the context is suffering in these verses. And so Paul is saying, I can persevere in suffering because of the strength of Christ in my heart. When I'm in plenty or when I'm in need, Christ alone is my strength. When I'm well fed or when I'm hungry, Christ strengthens me. When I'm in the, the stuff of life and it feels like the boat is sinking, when I'm being stoned to death, 
When I'm in a Roman jail, Christ is my strength still at that point. In any situation, in every situation, Christ is the one who strengthens me. Because his power is revealed through my life and through broken pots and jars of clay like me. Charles Price was a Christian preacher, a fine Christian preacher and writer, and he met a man who lived his life under this motto, for this I have Jesus, for this I have Jesus. They became friends because this man took it upon himself to to write a short pamphlet on the life that is found only in Jesus Christ. He also wrote and made tens of thousands of yellow velvet bookmarks that had on them written, for this I have Jesus. This man was cut down by a stroke and Charles Price got to hear about it and he rang his home and spoke to the man's wife. She said to to him, to Charles, it's great that you've rung. We've just got home from the hospital, but the, uh, the reality is you won't be able to understand what my husband now says as he speaks. The stroke has affected his speech, so he can hardly communicate. But I'll, I'll hand the phone over to him. He'll be glad to hear your voice. Charles Price says, I knew exactly what he was saying. He said, for this, I have Jesus from his paralyzed body. For this, I have Jesus. No situation could rob him of his security, said Price, or of his joy. In 1994, Charles Price was speaking at a famous Christian conference in the United Kingdom called Spring Harvest, after which he received a letter from a woman who was in the the congregation, in, in, in the crowd, as he spoke. She wrote these words, I came looking for you after your talk, but I couldn't find you, so I asked the organizers for your address so I could write to you. I want to tell you something about myself. A while ago, my husband was killed in a road accident. It was the worst thing that could have happened to me, and we have two young children. The day before he was killed, a friend of mine sent me a letter, and in the envelope she enclosed a little yellow velvet bookmark that says, for this I have Jesus. I thought that's sweet, and I put it down on the table next to where I have coffee every morning. Next morning, my husband had gone to work and a policeman came to my door at 9 a.m. and said, your husband has been involved in a road accident. Would you come with me to the hospital? By the time I got to the hospital, my husband had died and I had to identify his body and then go and pick up my children from the primary school and we had to come back into our home. When we came into our home, there on the table was the yellow bookmark. For this, I have Jesus. I cannot tell you what that has come to mean to me, so much so that on the tombstone of my husband, we've inscribed, for this we have Jesus. Now is that the Jesus of your life as we come to the end of the book of Philippians? You can have a Jesus in your life. He's like the patron saint. He gives you good luck. You trust him for the future. You trust him for your health, wealth, and well-being. You can be like one of those boats that bobs around in the tidal waters in the harbour when all things are going well. But the trouble is, what happens if he causes you to suffer? Chapter 1, verse 29. For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe on him, 
but also to suffer for him. If that happens, we can say sometimes, if that happens, then Jesus gets the red card. If Jesus causes the sun to shine upon me and all is well, then I'm all for Jesus. But since the World Cup starts today, if suffering comes, who gets the red card? Jesus can be your teacher. He can be your model. Or is he your life? And is he your strength? Here's the litmus test. When you think about heaven, when you think about the future, do you think about a future where sickness is no more, that's pain-free, where it's unstained natural beauty, where there's a suffering-free existence, when you're full of family and friends and the leisure activity of your choice? But do you mind if Jesus is there or not? That's the litmus test. If that's the case, then that shows you you want Jesus to improve your lifestyle and your circumstances rather than he's your closest friend and your saviour. One of the things that I think the COVID years should have taught us is that it's very easy to be content with Jesus when we're well fed, when we're full of plenty. But equally, we need to be content with Jesus when life is full of challenge and when we're in need. Look at Paul and his relationship to the church in Philippi as we close. Verse 10, he says, you've been so kind to me. You've renewed your concern for me. Verse 14, you've shared in my troubles. You were the only church who helped me out financially. Verse 16, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again. Here's, here's the map. You've underwritten my ministry over the past decade as I've gone from city to city to plant churches around the Mediterranean basin. You've always been there in God's kindness for me. Ten years later, now I'm in prison and I've got ample provision because of your generosity of heart, because you trust Jesus for the future. And I'm so grateful. But do you know what, church in Philippi? It wasn't even your generosity that sustained me. It was the strength of Jesus Christ who's taught me what true contentment is and he will provide for all of your needs from his riches. Verse 19. Let's pray.